Rusty Reno. I'm the editor of First Things, and welcome to our regular podcast, The Editor's Desk, which of course is where I'm sitting. And today I have with me Nate Hockman, staff writer at National Review, and even more importantly, author of Can a Business Goes to Pot, a review in the October issue of First Things, a review of the book by Robin Goldstein and Daniel Summer, Sumner, Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics. Welcome to the First Things Podcast, Nate. It's my pleasure, Rusty. Thanks for having me. All right, great. Uh, so um, these this book are is written by what pro legalization folks? Yes, I would say both the economists who are uh, at the University of California system, they're pretty obviously, they don't try to hide their cards in favor of cannabis legalization, but they are distinct from pro-legalization activists in that the entire book is very commonsensical. It's cataloging all of the major problems with cannabis <laughs> legalization. So it's written from a sympathetic perspective in that they are trying to write it as a sort of program guide to help the cannabis legalization movement <clears throat> overcome all of these monumental problems that it's encountered since the experiment began in the early 2015s. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the cannabis, uh, the cannabis business has been an absolute disaster, and they do not shy away from describing exactly how disastrous it's been. So, all right. So let's... Uh... I mean, my recollection is, is this was going to be a great win-win, right? That's always been the argument for legalization. Uh, what is it? It's the argument, oh, you know, it's no different than having a martini. Um, you know, this is a hangover from an older, you know, um, uh, what was the film about, you know, smoking pot? It's uh, a reefer drug. Madness. Reefer, reefer Madness. madness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, but it, but it turns out there are real costs here. What are some of the costs that 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 uh, Goldstein and Sumner bring forward? They they mostly talk about economic costs. That's right. They almost exclusively focus on economic costs, which is one of the points I was making in the review. Is that insofar as the book is a book about economics, it does what it sets out to do, which is to catalog the enormous logistical snags that cannabis legalization has encountered from start to finish. So that includes, you know, enormous amounts of logistical problems in terms of just the regulation, the taxes, the, the various uh, different problems with the implementation of the cannabis business and the gap between expectation and reality, but also the fact that the black market is an incredibly sophisticated infrastructure for cannabis, which has existed for the better part of a century now. And most cannabis users, the really sort of daily cannabis users who would be the basis for the market, have no reason to buy cannabis from legal uh, retailers, which are two to three times as expensive because of all of these regulations, when they already have a pre-existing relationship with their dealer. So the promise of cannabis legalization, as it was pitched, was that by bringing cannabis out of the shadows and making it a legitimate regulated business, you could have it be safe and regulated uh, and basically eliminate the black market. And the point that Sumner and Goldstein are making is that 
actually that didn't happen at all. And in many of the states, most of the states that engaged in the legalization experiment, you actually have a flourishing black market while the actual legal cannabis has withered away. Um, So they mainly focus on the economics of the issue. And I would argue that the real costs of cannabis legalization are actually civic uh, and moral. And that was the point that I was making. But what they do by focusing on the economics is they paint a really damning portrait of the contrast between what activists were saying was going to happen when we legalized pot and what actually happened in reality. Wasn't Oregon, you're from Portland, Oregon. I am, to my great shame. Oh, no, no, you shouldn't say that. It's a beautiful place. <laughs> it is. Maybe it has some troubles, but <laughs> Oregon was a, the first state to legalize marijuana. Am I remembering correctly? Or among well, the rec- recreationally, Colorado was the first, but Oregon followed soon after. And then Oregon recently went much further than any other state in that they've recently decriminalized all drugs. So dr- possession of <clears throat> drugs as hard as heroin and meth and crack are now basically treated as a parking ticket. It's a civil citation, despite the fact that Oregon has some of the highest addiction uh, and drug use rates uh, in the country. So they have actually gone well beyond cannabis legalization now to decriminalize effectively every substance that you could get your hands on. And this is the, uh, it follows the same script at least as I, I can observe, uh, legalization going beyond marijuana is, uh, it follows the same script, that this is going to um, right, ticket out of the shadows, um, allow for treatment, um, uh, you know, undermine the, the illegal, you know, the gangs that flourish in, in, in this kind of commerce. Um, but so that, so, so the, this book and your own reflections on this is, is a kind of warning it, that these promises tend to be um, empty ones. Well, they're hubristic in many ways. And one of the values, I think, of the fact that the book is written from an economic perspective is effectively what the authors do is they alternate between quantitative studies of what's actually happening with the implementation of the cannabis business on the ground which began with all of these utopian predictions about how we were going to mint more millionaires than Microsoft. That was the line, the infamous line from one of the cannabis investors. And the fact that actually what happened was that cannabis almost everywhere failed to take off and the black market is flourishing as much as, as it ever has been. Um, but they alternate between those quantitative studies and qualitative interviews with the actual activists who were involved in the cannabis legalization push. And what that brings to the fore is a study in contrasts between what activists thought was going to happen, which was that you could have everything, to your point, that you could have a flourishing legal cannabis, you could make lots of new jobs, you could regulate it so that it was completely safe, and you could completely get rid of the black market, and there'd be no civic side effects. And the actual numbers, which are impossible to argue with. And to their credit, some of the activists that they interview in the piece are quite uh, introspective. They're quite self-critical and they recognize, at least the ones that they're interviewing, that they were, they were hubristic and that they were uh, not cognizant of all of the actual logistical problems that trying to bring a sophisticated black market into the legal sphere would cause. Um, but I don't see 
outside of the activists that they are interviewing, I don't see a whole lot of that introspection on behalf of the folks who are now pushing for nationwide cannabis legalization. It doesn't seem like a lot of these problems have even been reckoned with uh, by folks who want to legalize cannabis everywhere. What, what is the tax rate? I mean, I'm just kind of well, curious, uh, you know, the end of prohibition and, and the re-legalization of alcohol did have the effect of pretty much destroying the bootlegging industry. And I'm wondering whether the, whether the taxation of alcohol, uh, alcohol is significantly less as a percent of the overall cost. So the tax rate, at least for cannabis, varies somewhat state by state. And another problem that the cannabis business has sort of struggled to overcome is the fact that cannabis is still scheduled federally. So particularly in the early days of cannabis legalization, you had this weird discrepancy where DEA agents were still treating pot dispensers, which thought that they were operating legally in these states as illegal growers. And you would have these DEA raids on businesses that had gotten certifications from their states. So that was a, a mess uh, that that is sort of the, the legacy of that mess is still very much with the legal pot business. Um, but the difference between alcohol prohibition and cannabis prohibition is that alcohol prohibition was a relatively small blip in the history of the alcohol industry in America and the West more uh. broadly. So you had a small experiment with prohibition. Americans decided that they weren't in favor of it after a, a relatively short time. And you brought the legal alcohol infrastructure back into the legal sphere. With cannabis, there, there's no such sort of pre-existing history of thousands and thousands of years of use. Uh, and there's no history of, it doesn't have the same preeminence in American culture that alcohol does. And what that means is that cannabis has pretty much, since it's been an institutionalized business, it's pretty much always been a black market business. And so the experiment in legalization is competing with 60 or 70 years of black market infrastructure, which does not have any of the same regulations that they have to meet, does not have any of the same taxes they have to meet, does not have any of the same sort of safety, cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it's exponentially cheaper, sometimes 200, 300% cheaper. And for the average cannabis consumer, particularly the folks who had a relationship with black market sellers before cannabis became legal, there's really no incentive to buy from legal pot dispensaries when the guy down the road is going to sell for you for a fraction of the price and you know and trust him anyways. Who are the players here in the push for legalization? I mean, it's my sense is it's a coalition of kind of right-wing libertarians and a kind of social justice crowd that sees really all 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 anti-drug efforts as disproportionately affect, affecting black Americans and so on and so forth. And then of course there's baby boomers like me who who want to believe that everything we've ever done has been for the best and so how could it possibly be bad people smoke pot? Right. Uh, that's it is a a eccentric coalition of all of those interests. I I've heard it once described as the libertarian right and the libertine or liberationist left have uh, created a very powerful and well-funded coalition, which has an enormous amount of power. I mean, one of the uh, sort of ironic, bitterly funny uh, anecdotes that was shared at the beginning of the piece or at the beginning of the book was that John Boehner, the, the famous Republican yes. congressman who was staunchly opposed to cannabis legalization when he was in Congress, 
became a very lavishly funded cannabis lobbyists and invested in the, in the legal cannabis business after leaving Congress and magically says that he's evolved on the issue, uh, evolved to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars that he gets in lobbying fees, and now lobbies Congress for cannabis legalization. So that's the kind of money that uh, the cannabis legalization movement now enjoys. It's these very powerful libertarian and progressive interests who have the backing of billionaires like the Koch brothers, for example. Um, and increasingly, it's also the billions of dollars that the cannabis industry in the legal sphere now has to spend on lobbyists, to spend on uh, lobbying and advocacy at both the state and the federal level. And as the cannabis business grows, just like any other legal for-profit industry, it's going to have a much bigger and more powerful phalanx of lobbyists and advocates who will push for its for-profit interests, both at the state and the federal level. And you've already seen problems with that. One anecdote that I shared is the fact that in my home state of Oregon, the people who are supposed to be regulating the cannabis industry are almost all linked to the cannabis industry themselves. So in many places, um, the fox is guarding the hen house, as it were, which it also belies the promise of legalized and tightly regulated that was made for the cannabis industry. As it turns out, a lot of the regulators are actually from the cannabis industry themselves. And rather than regulating in the interest of the common good, they're regulating in the interest of the cannabis industry. Let's talk about the social costs. Uh, that's of interest to you, even though the authors of, of this book don't, don't address that. Uh, I got to say, the push for drug legalization is, you know, is happening at a time when we have declining life expectancy in the United States. And one of the main drivers of that declining life expectancy is drug overdose death. Um, and I would submit that other factors, risk factors um, you know, for early death, um, underemployment, social isolation, these are all also um, uh, drug abuse has a you know, profound effect on that as well. So it just strikes me as, I mean, really irresponsible at a time of social disintegration <laughs> for our leadership class to embrace this, um, this idea. Right. I, I completely agree. And a point that I was making in the review I wrote was that cannabis legalization certainly has civic costs. They might be the kind of civic costs that in a time of enormous civic health and prosperity, uh, American society could grapple with. But in a time of social disintegration and alienation, cannabis legalization is going to just add more fuel to the fire precisely because of the adverse psychological and civic effects that heavy cannabis use has. In many ways, they feed directly into the most fundamental problems that American culture is facing today, which is alienation, isolation, lack of motivation, lack of interest in um, actually engaging with civic life. I mean, one thing that the activists who defend cannabis legalization are broadly correct about is that it's basically impossible to actually overdose on cannabis. But what you can do is cause serious mental health problems from taking too much cannabis. Yes. And you have seen spikes in emergency room visits from people who took too much of a cannabis brownie or something, which is much, much more powerful than the kind of cannabis that we were talking about in the 1970s. And in some ways, is a completely different drug and is accessible to younger and younger children. And that causes long-term issues. It's been linked to anxiety. It's been linked to 
uh, young men who don't have jobs uh, at a working age and aren't getting married are disproportionately more likely to be using cannabis. So all of these civic issues that America is facing, cannabis, at, it, it, when it's being used and on a widespread level, is just contributing to those. And again, those civic issues aren't really things that you can always measure numerically. They're not something that's accessible to economic measurements, but they're profoundly important. And they're not part of the conversation about cannabis legalization as much as they should be. One of, here in New York City, um, I, it basically went, the sequence was non-prosecution. There was a, during the uh, de Blasio administration, the 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 word or it became a, I think it was a policy that was announced of non um, non prosecution of, for possession of marijuana um, I mean for personal use dot 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 um, and then and then legalization I think we got legalization here a couple of years ago um, boy boy I, I got to say in that time frame of about a half a dozen years I went from never smelling pot. So I cannot walk home from work without every other block. You go through a big whiff of, uh, of marijuana smoke. You can really, and also people will say, well, I mean, you know, people drink, um, but I just don't think construction workers are having a beer before work. But it's obvious when I walk to work in the morning that there are, there are people, you know, having, having their tokes before they go to work. I just don't see how this could end well. <laughs> well, not only does people smoking on the job, particularly on jobs that you often operate heavy machinery with, uh, such as construction, not only does that carry obvious dangers, but it's also, to your point, a basic sort of civic order question. The, yes. Again, it's, it's very difficult to measure the impacts of smelling strong, the strong stench of cannabis everywhere that you walk. You can't quite quantify that. Oh, I find it, it very demoralizing. It's very like, demoralizing. Whoa, what, what, what a kind of world, that, like what kind of society am I living in? Well, precisely. And that, I think, relates to the sort of broken windows theory of mm. public order, which is that small infractions, small sort of degradation of the maintenance of the public order leads to a broader kind of spirit of disorderliness and a spirit of lack of respect for the laws, which causes much more serious infractions because it creates a culture and an atmosphere of lawlessness. So that's what you're encouraging with cannabis use, which again is not something that you can always measure with studies, but you are creating an atmosphere in which drug use and intoxication is pervasive. And that in and of itself is an atmosphere in which more serious violent crimes often flourish. Yeah, you know, I think the analogy here is that uh, in England, it can be really kind of shocking uh, how much public drunk drunkenness there is at, uh, in the evenings. And yeah, that can't be good for, even if it's not illegal, strictly speaking, we all recognize it as a kind of dysfunction. And to have that kind of dysfunction sort of in front of you day after day after day, yeah, I think it could, it, it does lead, there is a kind of broken windows, uh, maybe not, I mean, the argument for legalization is that it prevents it from being a, a law-breaking but here it's a kind of broken windows about why we should, I don't know, be committed to a good work ethic and, you know, civic order more broadly understood. Um, yeah, I found this, I find uh, the drug legalization uh, 
It's similar to the way I felt back when state lotteries were erected in the 1970s. Um, in that, it was the same argument. That people are going to gamble. Um, we might as well bring it in the open and regulate it. And I see that argument, but the law is a teacher. And when the state uh, allows something, or in the case of lotteries, actually sponsors and, and, and runs things, it's basically telling people this is an okay thing to do. Uh, and it and it undermines any kind of ethic of self-discipline that says, actually, no, these are vices. These aren't okay things to do. Precisely. And I think that is one of the least convincing arguments that I hear for cannabis legalization is that people will use cannabis even if it's illegal. People will commit any number of crimes. Practically every crime on the book is a crime. Laws against them. If people <laughs> That's didn't right. Do them. <laughs> it would be pointless to outlaw something to actually go to the uh, the the length of actually committing law enforcement resources to it if it wasn't something that people did from time to time. That's the point of the law being a teacher. The point we have, the point of a prohibition on drug use is because people use drugs. That in and of itself is not an argument for letting people use drugs. It's actually an argument, uh, potentially at least, for restricting drug use. Uh, and I think the, the point about broken windows and the connection to lawlessness, there is actual empirical data for this. One of the, the cities that I was citing as an example is the fact that in Baltimore, most of the folks who are arrested for cannabis use are also eventually arrested for more serious violent crimes. So, you know, the fact that a prisoner is categorized as a drug offender um, does not mean that that's the only nonviolent or crime that he's actually uh, uh, committing. More than three quarters, this is the, the study that I was citing, of released drug offester, uh, um, offenders are, are real arrested for non-drug crimes, more violent crimes. So again, that is what a culture in which something like drug use and the sort of licentiousness that is associated with it creates. When you allow something that some activists could argue in a vacuum is harmless to happen, it is often connected to things that we should all recognize are harmful. And that's clearly what you've seen with widespread cannabis use. Okay, you've talked about lawlessness. It seems to me that marijuana legalization also cuts in a, 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 a in a different direction. They're not contradictory, but there's a certain segment of the population where, uh, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or any other drug, that it if they have a propensity to crime, it'll just lower the inhibitions and and and, and might lead in that direction. But I would say that in most cases. My concern about widespread marijuana use is that it's a demotivator. It's a, it's a kind of, um, it's a way of dulling uh, life. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I worry that in combination with alcohol, marijuana, and, you know, easily accessible internet pornography, you kind of have this benumbed, population in our society, increasing, growing population, um, kind of like a Brave New World-ish uh, type scenario here that, that um, I think concerns me. We'll give people legal marijuana, f free pornography, and, uh, and universal basic income, and then we can, we can basically pacify society. Do you share these? Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit... I often accuse people of doomerism. I hope I'm not being too doomeristic. 
<laughs> well, I don't think it's doomeristic to recognize this is something that we actually do have empirical data about. It's the kind of empirical data that we have actually decades of studies about and has been studiously ignored by advocates of cannabis legalization uh, who also attempt to discredit a, a variety of these studies. But there is such a thing as marijuana use disorder. And in 2020, one in three Americans who use marijuana in the past month qualified as having some symptoms from marijuana use disorder. And that implicates everything from memory and attention disorder to motivation issues. So th that's something that we actually ha we, we have enormous amount of evidence to show that the psychoactive effects of marijuana use, of chronic marijuana use, is not harmless. It can't kill you like something like methamphetamine or crack cocaine um, can, but it can kill your spirit. And it's something particularly a problem, I think, among young men. We already have a quiet epidemic of young men who are my age or slightly older, who are at the age where they're supposed to be making something of themselves. They're supposed to be out there um, pursuing a career, meeting a woman to get married and have children, to settle down, to be a, a beneficial part of civil society. And instead, they're living, it's a, it's a stereotype, but it's actually increasingly true for a lot of young men. They're living in their parents' basement, they're playing video games all day, and they're smoking an enormous amount of cannabis. So correlation isn't always causation. With all of these things, there's obviously multi-causal explanations for it. But to the point we were talking about earlier, it's clear that cannabis is contributing to that and making cannabis even more widespread, even more available, and attaching a profit motive to it that allows the cannabis business to actually lobby for policies that make it more profitable, which means creating more cannabis users, is only going to exacerbate that problem much more than I think we even see it today. One of the great paradoxes of our time is that as these different, as this coalition, as you say, the sort of libertarian right, libertine left um, pushes for, and really with the acquiescence of our elite uh, are acquiescing to this. At the same time, we're, the Biden administration is really laying the foundation for effectively the elimination of cigarettes. <laughs> We, we, it's a very paradoxical, paradoxical time uh, that we live in. So here, let me sort of ask you, it's, can we reverse course? Well, I think we absolutely can, because this is a public policy choice, and it's not a public policy choice that we need to make. You know, history doesn't move inevitably in one direction. Americans could decide tomorrow that they've had enough of smelling cannabis on every street corner and having their children not actually go out and make something of themselves and uh, not having cannabis use and the associated lawlessness and disorder be a part of uh, the, the communities that they live in. But that is a choice that Americans will have to make for themselves. And right now, one of the problems is the pro-cannabis lobby, the pro-cannabis legalization interests are very powerful. They've spent a decade organizing they have proved time and time again they're not actually interested in reckoning with the various issues that cannabis legalization has wrought. And the opposition is much less well-funded and much less well-organized. You do have groups that oppose cannabis legalization. You have police unions, you have uh, prison guard unions in California were very prominent in legalizing or uh, opposing legalization. But thus far, they've failed to stop it. And I think Part of that has to do with the fact that in the public conscience, because of the effectiveness of the messaging campaign on the pro-legalization side, 
everyone thinks cannabis is harmless. No one's really reckoning with the variety of problems that are quietly but pervasively happening. Um, and until the public narrative shifts, I think more and more people are going to be talked into the idea that cannabis legalization and a billion dollar cannabis for-profit industry is in America's best interest. So we don't have to do this. It's a public policy choice. Like most of the public policies that have been bad for America over the course of the last three decades, this is a choice that we do not have to make. But right now, the momentum is certainly on the legalization side. And until Americans who have serious problems and serious misgivings about cannabis legalization can actually organize uh, and change the discussion and the, inject their own facts and their own experiences into the discussion, it seems like the trend is towards more and more legalization. Well, thank you for being a voice for sanity to try to reverse the trend. <laughs> I really appreciate that. And thanks for this great piece in First Things Magazine and for being on the podcast. I appreciate it, Rusty. Thanks for having me. Uh, great. 